listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. So hopefully you're softened up a little bit by this time, this time of the day. Uh, usually we've, we've uh, battled sleepiness. We have uh, uh, endured the gurglings and rumblings of each other's stomachs and digestive tracts. We've uh, dealt with the fact that we're feeling uncomfortable. And this is all good. It softens us up a little bit. And this is a really important characteristic of moving beyond pain. Um, I had it described to me uh, that, that meditation, having some structure around a stillness practice, uh, allows for us to cocoon. And that butterflies come from cocoons. That we, in other words, willfully put ourselves in a situation of kind of, you know, incredible structure so that uh, we can burst, burst from all of it later on, entirely different. Um, I forget who said uh, caterpillars don't recognize butterflies, uh, but um, it's imp- I think it's really, really beneficial for us to kind of let that, let that tenderization occur, let, let the... Uh, let ourselves willingly be vulnerable, as I said earlier, to both the little things and the big things, little pain as well as big pain. It was brought to my attention by uh, one of today's sitters, and I, I, don't, I don't want to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anybody, but Lucy was really right on when she said, that, oh, sorry, that an itch, an itch registers neurologically the same way that pain registers. Am I getting that right? I, I remember hearing that before, but it was, a, it's, it was so neat when you said it like that. We discussed how pain or feelings or thoughts, they're activities of the mind that meet the body. They're judgments that become embodied. Okay? And so it helps us you know, if, if we're not dealing with, you know, the big pain that's going on, uh, little pain can really help us. Let's take an itch, for example. Next time you feel an itch, try not scratching it. My teacher used to say that uh, it's important to let whatever type of uh, pain comes up during uh, zazen, whether it's physical or emotional, he says, let it build, let it build, let it build, let it build until it pops of its own accord. And the same thing applies to an itch. If you study the itch without moving, you will find that its intensity builds and builds and builds to the point of, oh my God, what am I going to do? And then the, since an itch is safe, I mean, you know an itch isn't going to wipe you out, you usually have the strength to kind of say, I'm not moving. 
you know, even give it a little bit of that flair. I'm not moving. Go ahead, itch. Keep building all you want. I'm not moving. And ironically, this is exactly when we see the Buddha in the in the posture, you know, posture he's sitting and he's touching the ground. As the earth is my witness, he said in that moment, I, I will not move. And that's when the awakening occurred for him, they say. I think it's entirely unnecessary to buy into any type of Buddhist mythology, but it's really helpful to take this very act of willful stillness into the itch. Start there. Start with little pain. And as you get good with little pain, you will find that all pain, all discomfort, all intensity can lead us along the same path, a very fruitful one. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about how this path, we can characterize in all sorts of different ways, but among the most helpful things for any of us, especially as we are dealing with pain, it's to recognize, number one, that all things are temporary. There is no such thing as permanent pain. Okay? You talk to somebody who's been in pain for years, and they will say, that they're, they're, you know, they still may be in pain, but their relationship to it has shifted. A little anecdote that I gave in the earlier talk kind of uh, uh, speaks to this. You can find that, that I, I ran into this circumstance at least. My uh, knees uh, were giving me tremendous discomfort as I was in a, an extensive, extended retreat. And I couldn't believe how after I just kind of told my body, I, I, I'm not moving. And I realized also that it wasn't the kind of pain that was causing damage, you know. It was, I just knew that it was just total discomfort. Um, you kind of get a bodily sense of that. Okay, wait, this is, not, this is not healthy. That's different than this is uncomfortable. And this was like one of those um, resonant discomforts that just kept building and building and building. And uh, by the end of the second day, I thought I, I thought I might pass out because my knees were hurting so much. By the end of the third day, it was even worse. I couldn't imagine that it would get any worse. So I'd shift my positions and so forth. And there was no escaping it. Even when I got into a chair, there was all this discomfort. And then by the fourth day, there was just this shift. And I, I could actually feel it start to happen, it was as if my mind gave up on the discomfort. There was such a clarity that I wasn't going to move, that it was as if my entire awareness just went, okay, it's there, but we're no longer going to pay it much attention. And so my relationship to the discomfort shifted radically. It was still there, but it wasn't the same. Nothing stays the same. And so when we kind of consciously and intentionally go into our discomfort, 
be it physical or emotional. And we stay with it. We don't move. And we recognize that it is temporary. We're in great shape. Great shape for this stuff to kind of unfold in a beautiful way. So being temporary is key. It's key to recognize that all pain is temporary. It is all key, also key to recognize that pain is a story. Pain is something we author. Pain is interdependent on all sorts of things. Pain, like everything else, is relational. And as I mentioned, I'll repeat this because I think this is really key. If we cling to this story, if we cling to this thought pattern that generates pain, if we hold on to it with all of our might, what we're doing is we're actually strengthening the intensity and strengthening our urge to flee. When we can refuse in a kind of tender way, a humble way, to bail on the situation, but we're going to stay right with it. We're not going to indulge it, okay? We're not going to avoid it. We're just going to stay right in the arena with it. And we don't move, it starts to lessen. And then the third thing shows up. We begin to see that our pain actually is essentially the infinite speaking to us just like everything else. We see that it is temporary. We see that it is interdependent with all sorts of other things. It's relational. We also see that pain itself is the infinite, just like everything else. It is not separate. Nothing is separate. And this realization starts to as it starts to show up, as it starts to percolate, if you will, we start to see that there isn't any situation that isn't an invitation to recognize what's true. <coughs> we start to see the infinite play out. We start to uncover this immediate and vast sense of emptiness that is full. It's total paradox. How could emptiness be totally full? Something that's just indescribably rich, indescribably powerful. And it doesn't involve us. It is not a self-orientation. It is selflessness. It's, it is as if we have let go of the self as if the, uh, um, everything that has bound us has suddenly popped open and we're free. All of our anxieties and fears about something in the future begin to lessen. All of the stories that we ascribe to the intensity that we, we call pain from our past all of our, our sense of, of victimhood, our sense of being wronged, our sense of injustice from memories begins to take on a far less intense role in our day-to-day. -day. And what's left is what's here and now.
what's left is a spaciousness between our thoughts of past and of future. What's left is precisely nothing. <laughs> I know that's probably not something you could put in an ad campaign. Want some nothing, you know? But it's, it's exactly what's revealed. It start, stuff starts to matter less. However, it doesn't mean we don't participate fully. As a matter of fact, it allows us to participate even more fully because there is less at stake. In fact, there is nothing at stake. <laughs> and this is a different kind of personal and perhaps even collective activism. We can engage the world from a place that is free of the strictures of mind. And it doesn't mean we're mindless. It doesn't mean we mindlessly go about things. It means we mindfully go about things as manifestations of peace, as manifestations, as we talked about earlier, love. That everything we've got on our resume, every single thing we've, we've put on that resume, that ego has written down, I've done this, I've done this, I've done all these achievements, or you might fall into the other category, all these flaws, I hate that I'm... All those things become perfectly weightless and meaningless. And that's a space beyond pain. That's a space beyond clinging. That's a space of release. We've gone through this recognition. We've met our resistance, and we go into this space of release. In whatever situation we're in, so my wish for you and me and everybody else is that we can rather gently but with resolve live lives that are taking us closer and closer and closer to this truth that every decision we make takes us closer and closer and closer to this truth that all that we do rather than being about avoidance or about greed is about release because from there miracles occur everybody is cared for from that space So the, the short answer is yes, there's a trick. Do you want to know what it is? You do. Or don't. I can't tell. I 
too. Oh, okay. All right. So before I get to the trick, um, um, this does not involve memory. In other words, th this isn't something that you will you will find. This is something that finds you when you get out of the way. So how is it that we get out of the way? In other words, it's not peace isn't something that you're going to go. I'm going to go find peace. You become a seeker, right? If there is if there is an entity that is seeking, okay, it's still separate from everything else, and that separateness is what keeps it blind, keeps it asleep. So, without I'm not trying to like play with you here, but what I am saying is that the minute instead of a seeker, you become a finder. Okay, you are essentially going at every single experience in your life, knowing full well that you are free, but that stuff gets in the way. And so it's not remembering to go find freedom or find peace. It's remembering that you are peace and that other stuff is layered on top of it that you just kind of need to poke through. So really what your question, the best way to, to, to kind of come at it would be, how is it that I can continually uh, uh, remember that I am that peace? Breathe. It's the very first thing. Make sure, especially when something gets hot, especially if you feel yourself start to amp, or if you know energy levels just start, you know, like that type of thing. It's like the volume suddenly goes up or something like that. Remember to just watch your breath, because that which is watching your breath, that which is paying attention to your breath, and you can do this right now. That which is aware of whether you're in an inhale or an exhale right now, that awareness is your freedom. That awareness is the space between your thoughts. That awareness is exactly what allows for a rather integrated, free-functioning being to move in the world from an enlightened place. Okay? So in the breath, it's like... And then as best you can, respond from there. <laughs> Sometimes that's difficult. Ego does not ever want to respond from, I mean, unless it's, it thinks it's awake, unless it's an enlightened ego. And I've said a million times, enlightened egos are still childlike. They're still very, um, in essence, spiritually mature because they think they can still manage the situation by being, well, I'm awake, you know, type thing, right? But if instead we can go at, go at whatever situation rather methodically from that from that spacious place, what happens is there's, there's no, the clinging doesn't show up in the same way. And so as a result, our response is always generous because it's taking so much more into account. So the trick is the breath. Okay? Sometimes people have little things they say to themselves and so forth. Um, I just, the, the way... Like it's actually one one of the cool things that uh, my wife and I find because as as you may know, um, partnerships will bring this stuff out more than anything else. Will bring pain, resistance, all that stuff. Um, when the partnership can be a spiritual practice, you can you can help each other. The minute stuff gets really hot in a discussion, you take a time out and you watch your breath, and then you come at it from a place of generosity. Solutions are easier to find there. 
<laughs> Can I add something? Is that okay? You don't need somebody else to play with you, though, to awaken. Your awakening is not, it's not dependent on your partner's ability to support you. All right? That tender openness can occur with them or without them. Fact of the matter is, the more open you become, the more beyond pain you become. You know, you start to, uh, you start to literally become more expansive. That light is absolutely, totally indigestible and intolerable for somebody who's in a place of deep unconsciousness. And so they need to make a choice. They either step up, okay, or they turn away, or they let you be. In most relationships, uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. They will figure it out. And it can, any one of those things is equally valid, whether the relationship ends or it continues or, you know, it's still changed as you begin to unfold deeper and deeper consciousness. It's a cool thing, actually, because everybody's ultimately better off. Did I give you enough there? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, D. The times when I'm the most aware of what I call the witness are moments of, or hours, of extreme pain or extreme pleasure. Mm. And so when it's just kind of going along okay or whatever, it's like I don't see the witness. Yeah, I'm curious as to exactly why that is. Um, well, I think that extremes, ex extremes resonate with us differently than non-extremes. And the, the witness um, is easy to employ in extremes. It's easy, it's easy for it to reveal itself, if you will, in extreme situations, because there's nothing we can do, you know? Yeah. <laughs> On the other hand, um, uh, the, our life becomes art when the witness is employed even in the more mundane moments, right? Which I think is one of the great reasons to have lots of ritual in your life. Now, I have literally none. Ritual drives, I remember like, I've talked to you some some of you about this. When I was here, I was like the the devil monk because I I, I thought the chanting was so ridiculous. You know, it was kind of cool, sounded kind of cool, but I mean, they were you know we were saying things that not only did we not understand, just these polysyllabic you know just you know stuff that not only did I not know what was being said, not only was there no context to it, but even, you know, the Zen masters in Japan who put this into the liturgy have no idea what this means. These are, these are ancient texts from dead languages. But the idea is to bring your awareness even into something that is that mundane. Yeah? Um, <laughs> now, it took me a while to realize realize that because I just, I, I found a tremendous resistance. I had tremendous resistance to that and now I look at it is it's actually so much more beautiful and helpful. But still not something we do here in the Sangha. You know. But um, try um,
If you have any type of daily schedule, I don't know if you do or not, try making sure you bring the witness into maybe just making your tea or just washing the dishes or just eating your breakfast, or just, right? And keep doing that with other stuff. And you'll find that it's actually quite a substantial part of, of being that you, that you can access or that accesses you. radical the other way. I mean, it's really yeah. like in your face. Yes. When, when you're in the extreme situation. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. You know, I'm nothing but joy. Or, oh, wow. I'm a lot braver than I thought I was. You know, right. Because you're looking at the situation like... like or, or, oh, wow, side. terror. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So let there be wow now in the normal. Wow. He just struck out. <laughs> Damn A's. They suck this year. You know, whatever. Yeah? Yeah. Yes? Um, what's the difference between the witness and the, and the big self? I don't think that the big self is necessarily different than the witness. The witness happens to be the focused awareness of the big self. How's that? If we look at small self as being ego, mm -hmm. or mind, okay, small self. And then big self is essentially what is beyond that. Well, big self has a, an intelligence and an awareness to it, okay, that transcends the small self's intelligence and awareness. And when it's focused, that's when we have this experience of witness. I sometimes call it the, the eighth sense also. If we have the first five senses, okay, uh, smell, touch, taste, sight, sound, right? And then the sixth sense, instead of being some ESP type thing, it's instead mind mind consciousness, okay? All right? And then the seventh sense is our awareness of time. We're t it's t things are time-bound, okay? And then after that, we can be aware of time, and that puts us into this seer or this witnessing capacity, all right? But then the witness itself is still a minuscule contraction. It's still something that you as an individual can kind of pull into being, right? And so that's when we go to the ninth sense. And the ninth sense is when we follow the witness to its source. And in that spaciousness, there is no thing. There is no self to be concerned with. There is no witness. It's not a sense. It's it's. It's isness. <laughs> it's what you strive for in meditation, right? Uh, no, in meditation we want to not strive. In oh, meditation, well, in other words, it's it it's, it's what you can kind of get to. It's, it's what's always there. It's it's what is always there. So it's not something you can get to. Just like you can't find your elbow, you can't find. I mean, it's there. Similarly, the ninth sense or this, you know, this expanse the source of the witness itself, is never not there. Mm -hmm. 
and the mind freaks over that one because it's like, well, wait, how do I, how do I get that? How do I, well, you, something way back down here at, at level six is not going to be able to manage what's at level nine or beyond. You know, it can manage the stuff that's underneath, but it can't, it can't, it can't go past itself. Just like a, a six-year-old cannot reach the maturity of somebody who's in their 60s, you know. Yet somebody in their 60s, and maybe you've met some, can be just as immature as a six-year-old, right? So once we actually go back, we, we kind of transcend, uh, we might say transcend and bring along these junior levels of this expanse, we get to play. I want to be careful, of course. You know, one of the things is somebody who can have this massive cosmic realization can then begin to act like a total knucklehead and say, well, nothing matters. Well, nothing matters. But some stuff does. And so if you're going to participate in the world, you're going to have to go by certain rules, which is why we have precepts, which is why we try not to lie, we try not to steal, we try not to abuse intoxicants. We try, you get the idea? This is kind of how this how this works. You can take all of the precepts, all of the commandments, basically, and they're all saying the same thing. They're saying, don't harm. So no matter how deep your realization is, don't harm. Yourself or other people. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, Bobby, and then I'll go Paul, yeah. Sure. I just want to check, and you know, if you have an itch that's poison ivy, mm -hmm. you don't want to say, "Oh, this is great for suffering and breaking through that enlightenment." You want to put that cortisone cream. I mean, you want mm -hmm. to fix yourself, right? If you have depression, you might want to take antidepressants. I think it's all good. That's all fine. Okay. But the thing is not—it's not getting caught by the relief or the itch. Okay, the deeper we get into the practice, the you know the more we actually can feel the itch of the poison ivy, but the less it matters. Does that mean that we don't put cortisone on it? No, of course, go for it. But the idea is there's this really cool kind of uh, space. There's this fine line, this razor's edge, where it's I'm addicted to to feeling okay. If I'm not feeling okay. You get the idea? <laughs> you know, I will feel okay. Ha, 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 ha. You know. <laughs> oh, I'm feeling so much better now. This poison. Thank God for cortisone. You know? Um, you're also bringing something up that's really fascinating. I had this, this, this friend of mine here who I was in a, a, a you know, practice, practice period, a guy that I was a, a monk with, and his name was Blake. And Blake had just graduated from college, and, and uh, we all went hiking. And I happened to be the only one on this particular hike who did not get poison oak. Uh, and I think that was largely because I stayed on the trail. These guys went, did some trail blazing, and I was much more interested in the view. I don't know why this happened, because I normally would be like in there with them. Uh, but I didn't get any of the poison oak. And you can get poison oak around this area like it's nobody's business. And these guys did, especially Blake. And Blake's poison oak hospitalized him. It was so bad. Um, but like we were just speaking with Dee, 
it put him in that space of, there's nothing I can do. And so, oddly, it was this pretty interesting gift. Just like our emotional instability can be a pretty interesting gift. It can put us in touch with hard-to-reach places that we might not otherwise get in touch with. So, while I do think that if you are in a space where you can get support, you can do, you know, a compassionate thing, put the cortisone on, by all means. But, be careful that you're not trying to escape. And I know that must sound kind of weird to the, the mind. It, it, and Yeah, I'll, I'll grant it. It's weird. Uh, but, but all of our situations, especially the ones that cannot be ameliorated with ointment, you know, or with medication of any kind, they're, t- they're, trying, to, they're trying to remind us of something. Let them. Let them. Yeah, sure. Sure. By the way, do you have any cortisone on you? No? Okay. Thank you. Say again that, that then I'm not completely suffering and processing it, and I don't know. Somehow that old Presbyterian gets really suspicious and thinks you got to be completely in there. Forget the witness, just be, you know, delve in. And right. That's it's not just the old Presbyterian. That's that's called the ego. <laughs> okay. So. And so the ego's alter ego is the old Presbyterian, <laughs> or the old Catholic, yeah. or the old Hindu. Pick your pick your uh, tradition. So the most important thing that we can do actually is witness the old Presbyterian. That's the practice, right? And in the witnessing of the old Presbyterian, guess what happens to it? It actually becomes youthful. It becomes, and if we look at youth as being the definition, I mean, the, or the definition of youth is flexibility. The rigidity begins to fall away the more it's witnessed. And so what you're doing is you're giving, you know, that, you're giving yourself and everybody else a gift the minute you can start, start witnessing process and stuff like that. Process, the minute, uh, and there's all sorts of really cool research to back this up, especially within the last 20 years. Um, the idea in the late 60s was to let it all out. You know, are you feeling angry? Go beat up, beat up on a pillow. Let it all out. Actually, that does far more harm than good that creates an energetic swirl in the being that actually puts it more deeply into anger, more deeply into fear, more deeply into unconsciousness, as opposed to cognitive behavioral therapy, which put it on on its ear by saying, wait a minute, no, give yourself an exposure to what it is that ails. Look at those thoughts. Be in the situation that creates fear and do it slowly, step by step by step by... It's essentially what this process, this work is. We're putting ourselves in situations where small pain, okay, or discomfort on our cushion, or, you know, whatever, can lead us to great big fat awakenings, you know, where the witness can be, you know, it becomes habitual. It becomes the new normal for us. A good cry is nice, but, it's, but yeah, it's, it, there's, there's nothing wrong with the cry. It's especially, it's especially beneficial if you can witness the cry. You know, when, I wit- when I'm witnessing and I'm stepping, when I'm, it feels like I'm moving, I'm 
know. That's a, I don't know. That's a little separating. That's a little distancing. And then I feel like I'm missing that connection. Mm-hmm. That's what what Right, and what I would argue is, actually I'm not arguing it or defending it, I'm just suggesting to you, I'm proposing <laughs> that you keep going because you'll find something on the other side of that. You will start hearing that the song of the birds and the, the, um, the crashing together of metal begin to have the same echo of the Big Bang. And it's not that, that one is bad and one is good. It's that all of this is a giant celebration. And we begin to dance with it. Okay? We begin to have much more fun. It's playful. It's quite playful. And that doesn't mean that you, you will no longer ever see tragedy. It just means, or, nor will you ever, you know, uh, uh, stop feeling pain. But it means that your relationship to all those things, positive and negative, begins to shift into a deeper space. And it's unfamiliar territory. It doesn't feel the same. Um, I still like uh, my red wine. I still like my cigars every once in a while. I still love making out with my wife. Okay, I still love all those things. They're still really. I love. Yesterday, just I was. <laughs> Cade and I were screwing around on the front lawn with the dog. Ah, fantastic. You know. The stuff of, uh, I mean, that's, it's beautiful. But it's not far away. I witnessed the whole thing. But it's not far away. Everything is within that witness. Everything is within you. Nothing is outside of you. There's no way you could be more connected than that. At least that's what they say, you know. <laughs> Did I see Paul? Yeah. How are you, by the way? You look great. You look great. Pretty good. Good, good. So, some cognitive psych things occurred to me. We're doing systematic desensitization of ego. Yeah, that is a good way. Good way of putting it. Um. Thank you. Yeah. Do you think... Um, I try not to. The witness, mm-hmm. you know, and stepping back, further back to the eighth sense, to the ninth connection to the infinite, mm-hmm. the emptiness, does that have a voice? The reason I'm asking is because in my meditation... Um, I can focus on breathing, and that seems to be a voiceless mm-hmm. witnessing. Mm-hmm. You know, like where is your elbow, mm-hmm. kind of thing. Because breathing is such a natural thing. But if thoughts arise, you know, I'm observing the thought arise, I almost always attach language to that. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. And I'm I think that's egoic. If you say thought Yeah. 
You see what I mean? I do, but but I th here's where here's I. Uh, that's not really the witness. That's that's the witness is right behind that. You right, but what you've done, what you've done is you've given the witness voice, or you've given this small self an enlightened response to what is going on. It's not judgmental. It's basically what we would call a discriminating awareness, right? Mm -hmm. So, awakening, awakening to truth. Truth, truth may not have a voice, except when it manifests through us. Okay. Mm. When we are truth, if you will, truth realized, and we begin to move through the world, and be in the world, participate in the world, dance with the world. Right? It's happening through this, you know, this stars. I mean, we are, we're made of stars. Stars are, I mean, it's all the same, same stuff, right? So when we give discriminating awareness uh, uh, or voice, when we give the witness voice like that, thought, feeling, future, past, that's awake. <laughs> Where ego comes in. Yeah, where ego comes in, though, is when it says, memory, God, I hated her. Right? It's where it's something extra. Judgment. Yeah, right, right. So I was thinking it's the witness using ego. It's because voice, I associate yeah. voice with ego. Yeah, truth, truth, has, has, um, uh, truth itself has no voice. It is, yeah. it is the source and um, uh, expression of all sound. Yeah, pre Big Bang. Yeah. So, so I mean, we can get really kind of ethereal and yeah. crazy about this, but but basically, uh, voice is not is 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 not um, is not the problem. It's what's underneath the expression that can be problematic. Or that can at least be a hindrance to awakening. That's subtle. Yeah, you're if right. You're right. If the witness, which is the you know the observer, which is where we're trying to be, where I'm trying to be, is uh, using this aspect of ego to identify ego. It's real easy for ego to step in there. Yeah. In a controlling kind of way. That's absolutely true. And there again, we go back to this idea of this, the, the maturation of our, process, of our spiritual path, the steepening that can kind of occur. You know, there's this, the minute ego starts to jump in is the minute it wants to circumambulate, make a shortcut and then start going down the mountain instead of hitting that top, which is really key. Yeah. Great work <laughs> today. Why does it want to do that? I don't get that. Why does it want to keep from going to the top? Yeah. Because the minute, the minute the climb up the mountain of spirit hits the top, there is no more self. Oh. You can't go back. And so the ego perceives this as its death. Okay? It's not the death of ego. It's death to ego's relationship to control. So ego is no longer the guiding force in our life. Instead, this witnessing awareness begins to carry, carry us through life uh, in a much, much more open way. Yeah. And that's so, that's so, because it's ego itself that's pushing you up the mountain. Yep. 
Mm -hmm. right. There is an awareness there at the egoic level that you want to get to this selfless place where, sorry, you won't be that important anymore. <laughs> That's exactly right. And it usually happens after the first few blasts of, you know, first few realizations, big, big, powerful hits. What happens is ego starts saying, why am I doing this? This is boring. I already know all the answers, I, right? And so then we plateau. Uh, and it's, that's really difficult. That's a, that's a really, uh, St. John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul, accurately. You know? um, and what do we do? We hopefully have a group, have a teaching and a teacher that can kind of keep, keep the container there so that we can still continue. Except something else begins to take over, and that something else that begins to take over is the, is the universe's natural impulse to evolve. That's interesting. Yeah, but don't get too interested by that. <laughs> Thank you all. Thank you.